0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.
1: I am. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Close Credit Podcast. I am your host, Eric Italiano, senior writer at ProBible.com. Today, as always, I am joined by Cade Onder, who you can find writing about video games over at ComicBook.com, and today we are talking about both the premiere of She-Hulk and House of the Dragon. For House of the Dragon, we are going to be joined by the raps, Brennan Katz, the old co-host of the show. For She-Hulk, it's just going to be Cade and I, but before that, we're going to run through some brief news before we recorded or i think kind of as we recorded last week the ezra miller apology came out uh, they they finally i guess gave in (laughs) and uh basically admitted i'm not sure what their exact statement was but they were like i'm aware i have a problem i'm aware my actions have been disturbing and i'm going to get help so as you pointed out and as many people have pointed out this was clearly option one of the three that warner bros thought might unfold um we've talked about this film a lot over the last three weeks because it's been (laughs) developing that much week by week by week i mean I guess this is the best ending for all involved. I hope they legitimately (laughs) get help. I hope that that help actually helps. And I hope that this means that the film could just move forward. Yes. Uh,
2: It felt like it was written by a PR person. Like it it had the language of a PR person. Uh, So that's, it makes me feel, is this genuine? I don't know. Are they going to just, like I said last week, I think like, put Ezra Miller in a compound and just be like don't go anywhere don't talk to anyone you're here until what is it June of next year <laughs> so like um Wanda in Civil yes, War exactly exactly um this is for your own good Ezra um but no I, I really do hope that this is genuine and this results in in uh some help um because it's needed. I think there's a lot of debate over like, oh, is this, you know, a, a publicity stunt against like the trades against Ezra Miller? I've seen that like a theory that people are trying to like slam Ezra Miller or something. I, I'm like, OK, that doesn't make any sense. Like this has been a thing that's been happening for years now. Like when that whole video came out of Ezra Miller, like choke slamming that person on the right. ground, like this isn't new. So let's take a step back. But. I, I hope that uh, this is the end of
1: it. <laughs> I wonder what Warner Bros. said to them to finally change the course of this. Like, you would something think, must have been the turning
2: point, you know? it, it Maybe they, they seriously went and said, look, this movie's going to make a lot of money, and if we nip this in the bud right now, you're going to get a nice royalty check at the end of this. You're going to get some big old box office back end. Um, otherwise, like... Because they're not. I don't think they're bringing Ezra Miller back, regardless of what happens. Like, I think this is just the end. Uh, so I don't think they're holding a contract over Ezra's head. Um, but you're you're totally right. It's it's like what were the conversations? How long were those conversations happening? Um, yeah. It's it's all very interesting. And then
1: I wonder if like over the next eight ten months until the film comes out, if they are going to reshoot some kind of post credit scene that begins the recasting process in the film itself sure.
2: yeah uh, there uh, Ezra Miller went back over the summer to film new scenes for the movie and was yeah. involved in other other stuff so all
1: right let's move on to the first brief 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 look at The Last of Us Cade you're the gamer among yep. us any thoughts here I mean
2: it is exactly what you would hope this looks like it is like picture for picture the game like uh-huh. there's a line like the one line i think you hear in the the trailer from joel is a line that like one of the most iconic lines from the game like you have you don't know what loss is it's a big moment in the game have you played it
1: yeah i have i have yeah um both, both games.
2: good yeah uh so big moment you see some glimpses of the prologue if you've never played the game i'm not going to tell you what happens but uh, that's a big 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 moment in the in the first game that really sets the stage seems like that's going to happen again uh nick offerman as bill who is like this doomsday prepper guy that is like taken over this entire town and booby trapped it um it looks amazing and it, again 30 seconds but i'm like in i don't need to see anything else like if they just showed this until Next year, but that's all I need.
1: I think that this will be their next massive big hit.
2: Yeah, I mean they they saved it for the end of their little sizzle reel of like and the world premiere of the last of us. Like that they made a moment out of it, which is shows how much they're they're invested. They're
1: definitely it's definitely a financial bet for them i read that pascal is getting six hundred thousand dollars per show which is i think the most on tv right now so probably yeah. they obviously see both him and the property as a worthy investment yeah uh ryan gosling to team up with margot robbie again in warner bros ocean 11 prequel gosling pulling the jake gyllenhaal route of like doing super kind of art driven indie shit for a year and now they're just going balls to the wall ip i love it paycheck moves which yeah i really you know i can't hate on that he has kids to feed he's got a family now he's about 40 so that's kind of like the prime age for this stuff i mean i this tells me one of two things that he's just taking the bag any which way that he can get it which sure. Uh, i'm sure is fine or that the experience working on Barbie was fantastic and he's like, <laughs> fuck it. Let's run it back and make a bunch of money together.
2: Yeah. I, I, I think he's good in everything. Even if he is cat, cashing in a bag, like he's good. So like I, he's very charming. I like that. And the oceans franchise is one of my favorite series. So
1: and his whole shtick. Matches up perfectly oh, with totally. the tone, tone of the franchise.
2: Yeah. If they rebooted Oceans properly and like just did Oceans 11 again, he would be Brad Pitt or Clooney even. like He yeah. totally slides right
1: in. Yeah. Um, Glass Onion and Knives Out story, I think it is, uh, to hit mm-hmm. Netflix on December 23rd. The rehearsal renewed for season two <laughs> in HBO. What a fucking wild experience that so- show was. Good. I I gotta be honest. I enjoyed it more when there were other when like it was actually the rehearsals. Like when yes. he did the bar one and Same when thing. he did the uh, the one in the the canes. But like, <laughs> but it's just like I I tweeted too. Like the like the draw of the show is not the concept. It's just watching Fielder. Just yeah. like watching him interact and like what how his brain works. He is just. I mean that ending of him like diabolically being like no i'm your dad while just yeah. fully as a woman is yeah. like such a deep level of layered comedy but to, to the extent where it's almost disturbing but only yes. nathan fielder could achieve that
2: yeah uh, if i don't know if have you seen nathan for you yeah uh, if, if you haven't out there listeners go watch nathan for you absolutely and then watch the rehearsal it is like a a semi-sequel to that it's yeah He is the best out there. Like, there is no one making television like
1: him, and we are blessed to be living in this this era. (laughs) I will say this is less laugh-out-loud funny than Nathan Furry. Sure. This is, like, this is, with wades into such absurdity that it's equal parts like serious and disturbing like dude the 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 scenes with him as a full-grown adult playing his young son (laughs) like horrifying yeah but then it cuts to that same adult outside smoking and it's laugh out loud (laughs) it's so fucking jarring dude yes and it's just like the way just to have that sort of mindset and that level of like his ability to sort of formulate plans like over complicated plans for simple tasks and simple problems and just mining comedy out of that is one of a kind. So, absolutely, I don't know what season two was going to be. Since clearly, at the end of season one, he seemed to come to like a resolution that. This sort of fake family thing is not a good idea. So maybe yeah. this will so maybe he'll go back to what the original premise of the show seemed to be, yeah, which was rehearsals for other people, but who knows? All right. And then House of the Dragon racked up the highest viewership of any 2022 Same. premiere with 2.6 million viewers, I think, live and then 10 million total. Thrones is back.
2: Yeah, uh, you uh, you've seen the video of the apartment building. Yeah, crazy. That yep. is just amazing that yep. this is such a cultural thing. I mean, like, not that this kind of genre is niche at all, but like, it's a it's a lot. You know, like, it's bloody. It has a lot of sex. It has a lot of uh, vocab words <laughs> that if you right. don't know what what you're getting into, it might be easy to get lost. So the learning to, curve is steep. Exactly. So to be able to bring in that many people. Is, is really a, a feat, truly. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right, let's move on to the first episode of She-Hulk, which dropped last Thursday, the first of nine episodes. Uh, critics and journalists saw the first four. I think that the premiere is the worst of them all. I thought that this was like abjectly bad. I will say that I think like the She-Hulk, like I think that the actress playing the She-Hulk character is a win. I think that the Mm -hmm. She-Hulk character is interesting in and of itself, but like the entire execution around the whole show seems to, it's the MCU trying to be wink and nod to such an extent that they've almost gone too far, right? To the extent (laughs) where now they've got Hulk who's supposed to be the scare who once upon a time was, the object of the we have a hulk like yeah. oh hey evil god from outer space that's cool but check out this green fucking beast we have, <laughs> you know what i mean and now he's saying things like dick move and bra yeah. and it's just such a tick gen zification sort of lowest common denomination of a character that of a character and as you've pointed out of now is just a general idea right mm-hmm. so not so not only has bruce banner been sort of whittled down into this goofy ha ha character but she hulk appears to be very much the same thing and you said why can't hulks just hulk out sometimes Mm -hmm. and i couldn't agree more so like i find myself sort of conflicted with liking the character but not liking the approach that they're taking to the show whatsoever
2: yeah uh I i think i said it's just a show of green people like it's not hulks it's just people that are strong and green and like it's not because the whole idea of hulk is the monster within right that that bad side of you that comes out that you can't control and i get that she hulk even in the comics isn't really quite like that she is what more of what we see here but i mean we got the incredible hulk which is like is that even canon sometimes we don't know they seem to pick and pull what what they want to use well he he
1: references it in this one because i think he says like the way that he'll wake up is sometimes he'll like fall out of a jet right and i think that that is from that film
2: yes that that sounds right to me um and and there's there's just a lot of stuff that's like so we saw him there we saw him in in avengers one and then age of ultron and thor so we have four proper hulk appearances and like five minutes of it in Infinity War. And ever since then, he's been Smart Hulk. And I just don't find that to be interesting, because now you've lost the danger of Hulk. Like, his whole thing is, this could go wrong at any minute, as we see in, like, Age of Ultron.
1: Even to such an extent, in Endgame, he's embarrassed of old Hulk's yeah behavior, which, like, in turn, rubs off on us, and it's, like, it's making you cringe at the MCU's own content.
2: Yes. It's, it's really bizarre, and... I was hoping, you know, maybe somewhere along the lines of this show, he does unleash regular Hulk. Maybe there's a reason for that to happen, but it doesn't seem like that will happen. Yeah. Um, uh, But, I mean, even uh, towards the beginning of the episode, like, obviously in Endgame, his arm is charred and fucked up. And at the start of this episode, he has some device on it that helps him with his arm. And then they get into this car crash and something happens. And his arm's like, he's just like, yeah, my arm's fixed now. And it's like,
3: what the fuck?
1: <laughs> then why did you burn his arm? But that just shows a general sort of lack of, I don't want to say attention to detail, but lack of concern. They know that we don't care at this point And that yeah. we'll yeah. just roll our eyes and move on. And one of the big talking points going into the premiere was the CGI, which it's like Marvel's CGI, the talking point in general this year has been absolutely exhausting. I think it was a little improved from the trailer, but still, and even Hulk himself, both She-Hulk and normal Hulk, the the uncanny valley of it all and how they look like sort of legitimate, not so much like CGI characters, but like computer renderings, like not as if they're using the sort of sticky, like as if sure. they're human beings with those sort of sticky dots on them. They mm-hmm. just look that they were totally CG created and i find it like almost off-putting
2: yeah her her in particular is what sticks out i can like maybe it's because i'm used to regular hulk and like they've invested the money and assets into creating him so they can kind of use him again but she hulk's face is just like sometimes it looks fine sometimes it's like ah why does it look that way and it's jarring and, and confusing and um I it makes me interested to see what she will look like in secret wars because ruffalo said she'll she'll probably be in it so is she gonna look way better in a movie absolutely and like will it the film budget yeah totally it's it's like what the fuck and they they talked about uh, in the promotion for this show which was a big mistake uh we had to cut out scenes with she hulk and hulk because uh we didn't have the budget and i'm like why are you making this yeah that's the whole thing um it's it's bizarre everything about it. Um but the
1: reviews have seemed to be generally positive so far.
2: On the whole show, yeah. I, I don't know. I haven't read any specifically, so I don't know what they're saying about the special effects. It looks better than it did in the trailers for sure. Um, but the, the one thing that really bothered me was the like the last 30 seconds of this episode when she turns into She Hulk in the courtroom and fights that random bad guy, not just CG. The editing was like, the fuck is this? It is the most bizarre thing I've
1: ever seen. I I caught that too. And I found myself thinking like, is there an element of them going for like the 1960s Batman sort of slapsticky, maybe sort of truer to the comic book tone? And if that is the excuse, I guess I'll give them a pass on that one, whether it be The general humor of the show or that sort of villain and the way that she comes in in such a cartoonish manner, like literally like the fucking Kool-Aid man. (laughs) That's (laughs) like the family guy's skits. Yeah, it's just all (laughs) very, it just feels cheap. Mm-hmm. And, and that is an unbelievable thing to say about an MCU product that features the Hulk and has probably been poured tens of millions of dollars into. But from its production to sort of its goals, it all just feels very cheap and very shallow. Yeah, And that to me is the biggest sin of it all. I but- would, And I've said it on the show a few times. I would rather, and I don't know at what point the MCU, actually, no, I know exactly what point. It's when Disney decided that they were going to make Disney Plus, and they had to put <laughs> new shows up on it. But I don't know when or where they decided, like, oh, we need to put out more stuff. Because I don't think anybody was asking for it. And now mm-hmm. that they're, they're doing it, I don't think anybody is really enjoying it. Because I think that the quality has suffered significantly. And if like Wakanda Forever, that looks dope, right? Mm-hmm. I am prepared to be blown away by that but if that Absolutely. turns out to be bad too i mean at what point are we panicking at yeah what point are we genuinely you know in panic mode i fear
2: that the wider populace it will take until an avengers movie is bad i think that's yeah. where it really starts to crack. i mean that's a long time we still have two years until that happens uh wait two three right two,
1: two and a half three two yeah. and a
2: half okay um so I hope it's not that long, and I hope we're not sticking with shitty movies and projects for that long. But it's not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, uh, Guardians looks cool uh, and, and stuff like that, but um, it, you can you can only have so many misses like so consecutively that before people start to go, okay, are the good movies the outlier, not the right. bad ones, yeah. and that's where it becomes a problem.
1: All right, Kate, do you have any further thoughts here?
2: Do, do you want to talk about the the clip that's been going around on Twitter of her talking to Hulk about being a woman?
1: I don't even know which one that was. What, it's, uh... it's
2: the one where she's saying how she can control her anger better because uh-huh. she deals with that stuff all the time.
1: Uh-huh. Uh Oh, I'm sure that's, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah okay. I, I,
2: I don't, I like the premise of it i I have no problem with the premise of that scene it is the way it is written to be clipped out it feels like they wrote that like we're going to clip this out and we're going to send it around and it doesn't feel natural well yeah it feels very weird and i think the better way to execute that scene is to show her dealing with all of that we see a glimpse of it at the beginning but to show her dealing with all of that rather than explaining it because you have people on Twitter now saying, I never realized women went through stuff like this. It's like, it took fucking the MCU, Kevin Feige, to come and be like, women have problems. And it's like, <laughs> no, man, like this, this is, this is weird. I, I think it'd be way better to organically show. I think it would have pissed a lot less people off. I don't agree with how angry those people are. I think they're over dramatic, but I think there was a better way of handling that. And I hope the rest of the series, uh, uses those elements in a, in a more natural and organic way.
1: I will say, I do think that of the four I've seen, the first one is the worst. And okay. that it does improve from here. But I the way that they've sort of nerfed the Hulk down and then the way that they've expanded that to general Hulk characterization, and then I feel like that sort of infects the whole show, whereas the Hulk feels like a cheap laugh character, this feels like a cheap laugh show. Yeah. Um, all right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll be discussing the premiere of House of the Dragon. All right, and we are back to talk about the series premiere, the season one premiere, the pilot, whatever you want to call it, of House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel that has been three years in the making. One of many Game of Thrones spinoff projects in the work at HBO. I think the last I checked, they've got about seven or eight joining (laughs) us today. I'm I'm dead ass. I think there's a lot of, yeah, I know it's nuts. Uh, That may now change, though, with the whole Warner Bros. merger. Right. Different story. Uh, Today, we are joined by our still friend, dear friend, old co-host, The Raps, Brandon Katz going on today brother
3: hey what's going on guys thanks so much for having me back i appreciate it
1: it is always nice to have you pop back up we had you back for stranger things i think we had you back for the batman one of them yeah we've got you back for house of the dragon so anytime we need the big dogs in we we, we call you basically i call you when i need shit explained to me
3: (laughs) you you, you come you call for any of the big ip i'm gonna come running
1: and Game of Thrones, I'd say, outside of Star Wars, is pretty much your jam, right?
3: Yeah, I'm a big, big Thrones guy. You know, I, I was the, the nerd who read all the books before there even was a TV show and then lorded that knowledge over all my friends. Although I did try to get all of them into the books, as many as I could, so we could be obnoxious to other people outwards. So <laughs> that was fun.
1: And now, is this series based on any of the proper main novels?
3: So this is based on Fire and Blood, which George R. R. Martin wrote. But Fire and Blood is essentially, essentially an in-universe textbook
1: okay. of like,
3: hey, this is the history of the Targaryens. Not sure. and, and Martin even, which I think is interesting, he even acknowledges that the textbook is written from a perspective that you don't know whether to trust completely or not, which adds a little wrinkle into That's it. That's cool. And I'm sure House of the Dragon might play with that.
1: And then just to add further context, Cade has not yet seen Game of Thrones at all, but he is. Dude,
3: I remember we talked about this last time. Like, how have you still not seen Game of Thrones?
1: I've, I've seen, I I saw like
2: five episodes a long time ago. Yeah. But I, I don't remember. I remember some incest. I remember a child being pushed out a window.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, that, those are the broad strokes, but like, it's simple, simpler in, times. Yeah, but as someone who's in like the franchise entertainment space. Yeah. Give it a shot for your own enjoyment. I know, I know. Uh, I,
2: I I keep saying I'll do it one day.
1: I do kind of see Kate's point of it being like extremely daunting. You know it's what I lot. mean? I mean, Game of Thrones was tough to get into at the time. Let alone when you're years, years, and years <laughs> behind. All right, so let's dive yeah. into Kate. Okay, uh, what be?
3: I'm just saying, like, yeah, but, like, come on. no I give, give it a shot. I know, shot. Dude, I know <laughs> that's not very analytical or adequate, <laughs> but,
0: you know, come on. Uh, all right, so it's let's dive into the it.
1: quick synopsis of episode one. I'm just warning you now, I'm going to butcher these names for probably half of the first season. It's going <laughs> to take me a while to really get into the groove of these names. So stick with us for the time being. In the waning years of old king Jaehaerys Targaryen's reign, fatal tragedies took his two eldest sons, Prince Aemon and Balon, leaving the succession undecided. A great council is convened for Westerosi lords to choose a future ruler. Jaehaerys' grandchildren, Princess Rhaenys Targaryen, married to wealthy lord Corlys Valerian, and Princess Viserys Targaryen <laughs> <laughs>
3: George R. R. Martin was like, "Fuck your pronunciation." <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So basically,
3: a king is
1: getting old. His two oldest sons die. The count, the 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 powers that be in the Game of Thrones world have to figure out who's up next. The two choices are Viserys and his cousin, Lady
3: Emma. No, Rhaenys was was a, a top choice of many, but she's a woman. So Westeros was like, nah, we're misogynistic as all hell. And that's why they kind of went the other way, even though she had a lot of support from a lot of people because she's a a cunning badass.
1: Okay, so they wind up giving it to King Viserys, who rules. So now we pick up nine years later under his rule. Uh, The Targaryen reign is under threat of the Triarchy, an alliance made by the free cities of Essos to obtain the Stepstones region stepstones region is not something that we heard in the game of thrones show they threw out a lot of terms and characters and spots that we had heard in game of thrones before but this is one that i had not heard heard uh Viserys also copes with his younger brother daemon targaryen's brutality against king's landing criminals in his role as the commander of the city watch it was at this scene where i was like oh thrones is back just like totally <laughs> unnecessary gratuitous violence i'm like okay yep Throws yeah. back. Uh, the Viserys is certain pregnant Queen Emma will have a son during a tournament to celebrate the impending prince's arrival. Sir Kristen Cole defeats Damon as the event is underway. Queen Emma and her newborn son die during childbirth. The hand of the king, Sir Otto Hightower, who I kid you not, I saw him on screen for two seconds I was like oh this fucking guy's scheming just like the way that they they shot him he's just looking so cold and absolutely calculated I'm like oh dude this guy's Ned Stark
3: is the only hand that never schemed because he's a well-intentioned idiot (laughs)
0: yeah
1: exactly uh the, the Hand of the King Sir Otto Hightower proposes that Viserys's only living child the young princess Rhaenyra be named to the Iron Throne over Daemon. After falling out with Daemon, Viserys officially names Rhaenyra the Princess of Dragonstone, heir to the throne. Several Westerosi lords, including on Stark, swear allegiance to her. Okay. A lot of fucking names. Gotta admit, while it's confusing now, similar to Game of Thrones at the time, I remember first starting Thrones. It feels like you're being thrown into the deep end in terms of lot. locations and, and characters and terms. So Of course, at first, it's going to be bumpy a bit, but over the course of the first season, we'll know who's who and what's what. I feel like a good place to start is our personal hype versus the hype of the culture. I think we have all seen the video be, I don't know if you've seen it, of New York City apartment block. Yeah, really Simultaneously watching House of the Dragon at once. And there are no more than a handful of shows that has that sort of power these days. Stranger Things, which isn't, linear necessarily so the watching isn't like that uh succession maybe but not to this scale so to see throne sort of come back and reclaim pun intended it's thrown that quickly I've got to say was surprising because while and I've said this the whole time I said that While I am not thrilled with how Thrones went down at the end, I'm also not going to judge Michael Jordan's career based on his time in Washington. So I was looking forward to this show just as much as I was Game of Thrones at any point. In fact, I was almost more excited because not only do they know what thrones did well they know what it didn't do well and they're like all right let's not fuck this up again but i was surprised to see how many people after years of being like fuck george george r martin and fuck hbo and fuck thrones to see how big of an ordeal it was Uh, am i alone in that what did you guys think about the initial reception and sort of hype around the show versus your own personal hype for it
3: well you know i I think you make a lot of good points because the film Twitter bubble loves to dig their heels in on a particular point and never relinquish <laughs> that point. And that was the case with Thrones. And I'm always someone who who can be angry about X, Y, and Z, but the ending doesn't erase the journey. You know, Lost is still one of my all-time favorite shows and considered one of the best shows of all time because the first four, four and a half seasons were pretty stellar. And the last season and a half was, was terrible. It doesn't erase it. So I think people need to judge a show on its own merits and not the ties that it may have. Because, you know, from a personal standpoint, conceptually, they announce that they are moving forward. They've greenlit a show about the Targaryen Civil War, basically. And I'm like, fuck yeah, that's awesome. I love that. I'm a Thrones fan who knows like the history. That's really cool. And even as a Thrones fan who doesn't know the history, I feel like there's a, a pretty epic appeal in that. Then they released the first trailer. I'm like, you know what? That looks pretty damn compelling. That looks like blockbuster action mixed with really, really intriguing kind of court politics. The One of the reasons we love, we fell in love with Thrones early on. Then they released another trailer and so on and so forth. So I think every piece of evidence suggested that there was quality here and a commitment to doing things the right way.
1: Kate, then for you as somebody who I felt like I almost not had to force you to watch a show, but like, if you didn't co-host this podcast, would you watch the show?
2: Um, I don't know. There was a lot of hype yesterday that kind of made me more excited to watch it, especially because I know a lot of people who are really big into thrones but really fucking hated what they did at the end. Um, also I'm I'm glad I'm not the only one who was lost with all the vocab words. I thought I needed a glossary to keep up with what the hell was going on, but That's just I, like a
1: thrones thing. Okay. It's a lie. Yeah. That's yeah. that's
2: good to know. Um, this is I I really enjoyed this. Uh, when you take out all those bits and pieces and just get to the meat of it, it is so cool of a guy. I mean, are we spoiling things?
1: Spoiler warning! Spoiler warning! Spoiler warning! Yes, <laughs> a guy
2: decides to kill his wife to have a baby to have an heir to a throne, and then the baby fucking dies too. Like that's that's some heavy hardcore shit to throw in your first episode, and I respect the hell out of it, and I love that this world is layered because I think Star Wars was like this at one point where there was a lot of politics and people didn't really always love that. But I thought that added layers to that world. And it has since gone away from that to the point where it feels a little hollow. It's just kind of like every now and then there's a person running around, chasing someone, killing someone. And like, that's, that's it. But there, you don't get the sense of what the world at large in Star Wars is anymore. Um, But this, is like, here are all these little kingdoms and and politics, and there's some competition for this throne and uh, this desire to have a man in that role and then Mm. having to settle for a woman um, and her having to rise to that task. I think all of that is very cool. And I'm very excited to see where
1: that goes. Yo, if you think that's cool, you should check out this show called Game (laughs) of (laughs) Thrones. I probably will now. Um, all right, so let's talk about the casting next. I, I'm curious if this is just like a result of me being, quote unquote, in the business. But do you find this? <laughs> oh, OK. <laughs> all right, then this kind of nulls my point because I was somewhat distracted by the cast. These are a bunch of names that I know just off the top of my head. We have Matt Smith, Patty Constantine, Reese Ifens, and the still unseen Olivia Cook those are four people that I've heard of and seen and whose work that I've liked. So I was curious if they like, intentionally cast bigger names this time around because Thrones is more of an established IP, but B, you're saying that most people just don't. Yeah,
3: wholeheartedly, the general audience. Like I love it that that we're in on this industry. We're covering it all the time. So these are like, oh, that person's talented. That person's talented. But the general audience has no clue who most of these people are. And and in a very unscientific, informal poll of my social group, the absolute closest 16 people could come to naming a cast member was that Doctor Who dude. That was the closest. And, you know, these are more, that's, again, that's a tiny sample size, I'm not saying. And he has a wild
1: face. Like, you remember that face. <laughs> yes, yes.
2: But absolutely. that is more
3: reflective of non-industry people. And yeah, so so they don't really know who, who is who. And, and we may like them as actors and actresses, but this is not uh, a named cast. And like you said, Sean Bean was the biggest name name in Game of Thrones and everyone else was for the most part unknowns and they've kind of done a similar thing here
1: matt smith kind of looks like in men in black one like the bug who like has to wear human skin and it's all like stretched out it doesn't quite fit his face right <laughs> that is what matt smith is like okay did you- water <laughs> right yeah yeah
3: but listen matt smith he has his fans man there's a lot of people who find him like a sex symbol
1: oh i know i know uh hey look man respect.
2: Uh shirtless <laughs> dance scene in Morbius. I don't know if either of you have seen that yet. I've not I've not, have not watched
3: Morbius. It's okay. Hey, do you
1: realize <laughs> that the guy who plays uh Otto is Lizard from Spider-Man?
2: I didn't know that until you said the name. Uh-huh. And then it clicked. Uh but what yeah, I, I didn't I didn't notice in, until you said that. Uh yeah, more of a stacked cast than I was expecting. I I know that everyone from Thrones is now a big star, but they most of them weren't really back then. Um, is the is the blonde girl the the younger one? Is she someone?
3: Emma Darcy is like a talented up and coming actress, but again, not necessarily someone you could be like, oh, I can't wait for the next Emma Darcy joint. Sure, she's yeah, the she only looks one
1: who like, I didn't re- really know.
2: Okay, she she looks like she's going to be a name. Yeah, like,
3: and I think Millie Al- Alcock, another another person who was trending yesterday, who's who's great in the premiere. So you mm-hmm. know, just a, a a lot of these up and coming talented people. You know, HBO Absolutely. doesn't really miss on casting too often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's talk about what seems to be the main foundational plot of the show. I mean, and I'm curious to see how much of this show they've they've got mapped out, how long they want it to go. Like, is it going to be, since it's focused on House Targaryen, does that inherently limit the scope and scale of the show? Whereas Thrones went for eight years, do we imagine this show running that long? I So... I guess my point being is that I felt that for a premiere, whereas Game of Thrones, the original show, I felt like introduced a ton of storylines and plot lines. House of the Dragon was kind of kind of just a tone setter, kind of just a character introduction. And then the main plot line being the civil, the the seeds of the civil war being planted, wherein Viserys chooses. Rainera over Damon B. This is kind of more your realm than mine. What is there to take from this other than the broad strokes? The only sort of nuanced thing that I might have picked up on was that Otto Hightower seems to be trying to stoke the flames.
3: So, zooming out, one thing that you just touched on that I, I really liked about this pilot is the Game of Thrones pilot introduced about 12 characters in across five, six key locations. That was a lot to keep track of. This is still a lot, particularly for newcomers, but essentially they introduced four or five main characters all in one central location that was King's Landing. So I think they streamlined a lot of the the big things that they needed to. And I thought they very efficiently laid out the overarching central conflict, which is like you said, this is going to be a real family ball buster of a fight. (laughs) And we established that all pretty quickly and easily in the pilot, which I think does a really good job. I'm going to assume, based on the actor's cast, and, and since we know that there's going to be multiple versions, there's going to be time jumps in this show that
0: mm-hmm. are going
3: to help kind of expedite some of the story, some of the progress, and, you know... Remember, we got 200 years between this and Game of Thrones. So they are going to want to speed things up a little bit. Having said all that, they definitely envision this as a multi-season show. I don't know if they're necessarily planning for eight seasons or if the story can support that given kind of where they want to go with it and and getting towards the rest of uh, the Civil War. But they certainly see this as a a multi-season show. You don't spend nearly $200 million on a first season if you don't have, you know, Oh, c- broader plans
1: <laughs> hey did you find yourself intrigued by the broad plot because i feel like having watched game of thrones fans of the show understand the context of the targaryens and what they were and what they became whereas uh do you have the knowledge of sort of their aura and their legend and their myth and sort of what makes this story intriguing in the first place you know oh my god uh what Brandon?
3: Oh my, you're going to be bummed. I, I know I'm what you're going to
2: say too. Yeah. It's the Batman thing, right? Yeah.
3: Batman, Cape Crusader among six animated projects not moving forward at HBO Max. We'll be ah. shocked. Oh, we'll be shocked. Okay. Well, that's good. Wait, what happened? We'll be shocked. I didn't see that part. Okay. We so we could it sell could it go somewhere. Go. Yeah. Where I know that's that can- com- fucking Zaslov. That's that's a topic insane. for another day. Sorry, yeah, I didn't mean to disrupt the flow. I just saw it and I was like, oh. No, sorry, no, I, I was like, like oh, 20 oh, minutes so- ago,
2: and I was like, I don't want to break the conversation by this bad, bad news, but no, no my bad. I'm that, glad you
3: said it. That's what the slack, the <laughs> slap, my stupid slack notification was. I'm that's glad, why I was I'm glad. I'm
1: glad you said it. All right, Kate. So go ahead. Did you find yourself intrigued by sort of the plot that this was laying down? Or yes, I
2: I, I have General ideas of like the Targaryen stuff, like I know the dragons are a very big deal in Game of Thrones proper and uh her role towards the end of the show. I know she dies at the hands of Jon Snow, and there's some stuff going on there. I don't know all the specifics, but um, I know they're a very powerful family. I don't it is the throne like master of the universe like i am the all-powerful being in this world is that what the whole thing is
3: well it, it means they are the leader of westeros which is one continent of like okay. two main continents kind of
2: okay although so it's, it's a big it's bigger
3: g- than that but that's a yeah it's a simplified <laughs> version
2: um okay uh so i i i have a general idea of everything i i will need to fill in some blanks but um, I'm very intrigued to answer your question. Yes, and and the uh, I don't know why this show is important to Game of Thrones. I don't know what context it brings. I'm, I'm sure that will maybe become clearer as I get more in, involved and stuff. But um, it is a cool ass show. <laughs> I think that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. Do you, do you want
1: the context, Cade?
2: If you have context right now, yes, I will. I'll take
1: basically Daenerys at. The start of Thrones is like what be one of the last two Targaryens alive. Yeah. And the dragons heard three dragons are born at the end of season one. And those are the first dragons to show up on earth in years. Hundred years. So House of the Dragon, they're this powerful family. They're the rulers. They've got the ultimate trump card and fucking fire-breathing, flying dragons. Sure. And yet by the time we meet them in thrones, they're exiled, they're powerless they're run off the map. Okay. So that so sort of explains the history there.
3: The right. the ripple effects of House of the Dragon stretch all the way to Game of Thrones, which is I think is fun creative connective tissue for fans of the original series. And and yeah, I think it also you come to appreciate a little bit more with that knowledge because mm-hmm. you got to know, okay, like the Targaryens are are whispered about as like these legends in sure. Game of Thrones and and this powerful dynasty that ruled for ruled for 300 years. And, you know, had this magic kind of in their bloodline that they could connect to dragons. So getting to kind of be steeped in in that world that we didn't really ever get in Game of Thrones because there was only yeah. one or two Targaryens. It's this cool full circle moment, I think. Would you say, Eric? Uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. And, I, I, you know, as you just spoke, I just thought about like connectivity and how, like how they use the Game of Thrones song. And part of me thought mm-hmm. that like, oh, that's kind of like a cheap sort of, <laughs> Subconscious, like, hey, this is still Game of Thrones, you're still gonna enjoy it. But then in terms of what Brandon said, like sort of filling in the full tapestry of this story, that even though it is a hundred some odd years apart, the ripples of this story are felt in the one that we already knew. Speaking of sort of the connective tissue between these two stories and time frames and sort of the recontextualization of the Targaryen reign, I think outside of um the introduction of the characters and sort of the laying of the foundation of the Civil War, one of the few major plot points out of the pilot was seemed to be the Targaryen's knowledge of and proactive defending against the Long Night and White Walkers, which is not something we saw in Game of Thrones at all. Not, not only did Daenerys herself never hear of this stuff until Jon Snow tells her in like season seven or eight, but the world in general is sort of unaware and uh dismissive of the idea of a long night at all so to see the targaryens now repainted as sort of these pseudo protectors of the realms like almost like a like like a like a secret society type we do this in the shadows for the good of the people and this is our cross to bear and nobody knows type thing i i I know George RR, George RR Martin is involved in the creation of the show. So this is a plot point that's obviously from him. But B, is this something that's explained in the books at all? Or is this totally, totally new?
3: Well, in the books, every culture has their own interpretation of the Long Night slash, you know, the prince that was promised, Azor High, or the stallion that will mount the world. Uh, you know, that that comes from Dothraki. So he, every kind of culture has their own prophesized messianic savior figure. And essentially, you know, Game of Thrones does touch on that, particularly the Oazora High, But, you know, in the books, we get a better sense like Rhaegar Targaryen was convinced that either he was the prince that was promised or his son would be. And so the, a lot of it revolves around, OK, who is going to fulfill the prophecy? And, you know, does the, the fact is, though, the White Walkers have not been seen for thousands of years. So many naturally assume it's just kind of a tall tale. It's a, it's an urban legend. It's not real. But the way
1: Viserys spoke about it was like, this is our family's creed. Like this Mm -hmm. is our, like our our oath. (laughs) Like we must do this, you know? So
3: I think the books give good context and, and again, Viserys is not in like the main Game of Thrones series, he's in a different book, but like it's up to each individual Targaryen. You know, there's some huge 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 assholes who are just power hungry totalitarian dictators within the family. And then there's people like Viserys who despite some terrible decisions in the pilot is a, a person who is genuinely trying to do good. He's not a great king because he actually cares about like doing the right thing, which which you can't always do as king. And so he he has somewhat of a moral compass. And I think he is probably, if not a believer, at least someone who who tries to, who chooses to believe that the Targaryens have this ethical, underlining guiding kind of factor in, in their legacy. So it's interesting to tie into the history and go all the way back and all the way forward from this kind of middle point that is House of the Dragon. I
1: mean, they definitely wanted to imbue it with that sort of holy mission gravitas because he literally says a song of ice and fire in that moment, yeah. which and to And that's me, like the Leo
3: pointing meme, like, oh, I know that.
1: Exactly, <laughs> which to me was the show being like, hey, like in case in case you didn't hear us, this is important, you know. Like they really believe this shit. So I just <laughs> but I don't like...
3: expect any White Walkers to be showing up. No, in the
1: show. no. But what I but what I expect this to be is a sort of uh, rehabilitation of the Targaryens. Might be a strong word, but from what we knew of them in Thrones, we knew of Danny, who at the end was, let's just say, not great. <laughs> and then her brother, who as soon as we met him was a total prick. And then was it their father who was the Mad Mad King? King. So every Targaryen that we had encountered in the show was like, oh, they're just fucking nuts. Or they're just a dick. Or both. (laughs) Whereas this seems to be sort of reshaping them as maybe misunderstood. And that once the Empire falls, the sort of legend of their story has been mistold. I
3: think it's more of an individual basis. Like, like they said in Game of Thrones, when a Targaryens are uh, born, the gods flip a coin, whether it's going to be greatness or madness. And like, I think Damon in the pilot is the kind of personification of like, okay, there's some good, there's a lot of bad. And I just think particularly when they're at their height, it comes down to each individual person. Like, you know, are they a good person unless... uh okay the targaryens are are misunderstood but I, i think that's what adds the rich texture is that it's not so simple and black and white it is a series of chapters that lead to a grander narrative for this dynasty this family
1: all right so i think that those are all the major plot points b unless you've got anything else that you want to touch on
3: i just think that the targaryens offer a very unique lens with which to view westeros and recontextualize some of game of thrones because they represent the best and worst of civilization and they come from a place in game of thrones kind of fictional history old valyria that is really tied to magic and you know boundary pushing civilization so it, it's just a really cool entry point into this very large vast and dense universe
1: Cade, okay, final thoughts
2: just generally the state of television right now is so good Like, uh, we just finished better call Saul. Uh, Disney plus is okay. (laughs) We had Barry this spring. Barry. I got Dexter. That's all that matters to me. Obi-Wan. We're getting last of us next year. Like I, I, for the last five years plus, I have not really been watching many TV shows except for the Disney plus things that pop up here and there. And for the last month, I have had something new to watch just to plow through, to tune into weekly that I actually want to watch. So that is good because, you know, some of the rest of this year, I've been having to force myself through some things that I maybe otherwise would have dropped out
1: of. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <Moon Now> I, <coughs> I, Well,
2: what was it? Moon Knight. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: Moon Knight. I'm still fucking mad about that. Uh, I don't really have a final thought, more a final question. Do we see... House of the Dragon, pulling in Ned Stark. In Absolutely. Uh huh. And then yeah. who? I, uh,
3: I mean, I, I know what's going to happen. Oh, I, I, oh, know, so, oh. Oh. <laughs> so oh. I'm not going to say, but like, yeah, of course, <laughs> course there's going to be some like that. You know, it wouldn't, it would not be an HBO show or a Game of Thrones show without some shocking death.
1: Oh, uh, okay. All right. Fair enough. Other than, I Sick. guess. I guess I'm going to go with Viserys and I'm going to assume that Otto is the one that metaphorically stabs him in the back. And that's going to be my guess. At two, Otto. Oh, very good. That's a Roman mythology
3: joke for you? No, that's Roman history. Roman history. Caesar and Brutus. That that happened. Yes.
1: Oh, that did. Allegedly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Hey y'all, it is Eric with just a quick programming note. My interview with John Hamburg, the director of Along Came Polly, I Love You Man, and the new Netflix film Me Time, which stars Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg, got back to me a bit sooner than I expected, so we will be attaching that interview to this podcast episode, and that will be starting now. Folks, today I am joined by John Hamburg, writer of films such as Meet the Parents and Zoolander and director of films such as Along Came Polly, I Love You Man, and his new film Me Time, which hits Netflix on August 26th. Thank you for joining me today, John.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here.
1: So I want to start with sort of, I mean, I looked through the work that you've done. I mean, you've been in the comedy game basically my whole life. I'm 29, so, and your films have come out at, interesting times throughout my sort of lifetime along came Polly came out when I was 11 and my family and I could probably quote that entire film. And then I love you, man came out when I was 16 and my friends and I could probably quote that entire film, but now comedy is in a very different place. So I kind of want to start there. What's the most challenging aspect of getting a comedy film made, whether it be on the studio side or on the public reception side Ie, sort of the social climate. Because I, I, I looked up. I Love You Man made almost hundred million dollars. Along Came Polly made about one seventy five. No offense to you in comedy in general. That would never happen today. So I'm curious, yeah. what the biggest challenge is on your end
0: yeah good great question i mean i something i think about all the time because comedy is my that's how i make a living um you know i think first of all there there has been a challenge getting people to go to movie theaters to see comedy so i think people go that oh i can just see that at home you know i'm gonna go see a marvel movie or take my family to an animated movie in the theater but comedy i'll just wait so that made you know the normal studios uh more reluctant to take a chance on comedy so thus streamers came in because i think streamers go audiences like these movies just as much as they always did they just may not want to go to a movie theater to see them so for me you know i'm not just saying this because netflix you know financed this movie but like it's been uh, a very positive effect having these streamers come in and go We still believe in comedy and believe in these kind of movies that would have gotten made 10, 15 years ago by the studios. And we're going to step in and and start to make those movies. Um, You know, so I think that's one factor. The next factor is um, the climate has changed and there's, you know, comedy does want to live on the edge and push buttons and... My comedy's never been political. Uh, It's more, even though they're R-rated at times, it's it's gentler, I would say. Like there's, the people are kind for the most part. Um, They're just sort of awkward people trying to make it through the world. So I don't take on that many um, social issues, but I do think you have to be aware of the climate we're living in, which has changed and, you know, changed for the better in my mind in many ways.
1: Well, you actually touched on something that I was going to touch on later, but I'll jump to that now. This film has a joke both about body shaming and getting a sex change. And while they're painted in sort of a progressive accepting light, they're jokes nonetheless. Is that you trying to be inclusive, trying to push boundaries or both or neither? Sort of what is your thinking behind those jokes?
0: Um, Yeah, you know, I'm just trying to uh, write as real as I can. And I think people talk about these kind of things. And I don't, I really aim not to talk about them or write about them in, in a way that's insensitive at all. I think, um, you know, one of the, maybe the body shaming joke might've been an improv from the actor. Um, and, you know, um, you know, I think that you just want to be reflective of the culture and sensitive to it. And uh, so that's what I aim to do. I, you know, certainly if we thought it was, I I'd never want to be offensive to anybody, um, but I I think that doesn't mean you can't say the words body shame. You know the character. Uh, I think because
1: I I just put myself in your shoes and I would just imagine the feeling of like eggs like walking on eggshells that any uh, uh, around anything that could be like headline grabbing. So I know considering how long you've been doing this that there's intentional thought there and it didn't just wind up in the film.
0: No, you 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 think about it and you just aim to to anything you do, in I do in this movie, aim to be sensitive and thoughtful. And right. um, yeah. even though we're making a comedy, we want to make people laugh, but I never want to make people laugh at someone else's expense.
1: For sure. And for those who have not seen the film, The Sex Change, Joe, comes in a scene where Kevin Hart is explaining to his young daughter that it's totally an okay thing, kind of. Yeah, it, it,
0: I think he's a dad trying, you know, the daughter asks if she has uh, a penis,
1: right? Exactly.
0: <laughs> he's, he's a dad trying to give as this most sensitive answer he can, and uh, that I think there's a lot of conversations like that happening in a in a lot of households sure. across the world.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so I noticed while I, I watched your film that relationships between adult men seems to be a theme that you sort of harp on a lot. And as someone on the verge of turning 30, the last few years, especially COVID and my age. I have certainly felt my friend circle shrinking where 10 years ago I had three or four guys that I could name as my best buddies and now keeping in touch is a real chore. Why is that something that you so often focus on? Uh, Whether it be in Along Came Polly and his friendship with this sort of childish but loyal friend or I Love You Man, which is the construct of this entire film or this as well. Why is that something that you're so interested in?
0: Um, you probably have to talk to my therapist to find out (laughs) what is going on because I, you know, it's, I don't know exactly. It's an area that, that fascinates me. You know, I would see it with my late father who really did not have close male friends. All the friends were through my mom and late in life, he actually made kind of a very close friend and that sort of inspired. I love you, man. Um, you know, along came Polly. It was like, everybody's got that kind of person who they grew up with who's just they're stuck with them for life but they they give them terrible advice and may you know make some horrible choices and i was trying to reflect that and with this movie with me time i was trying to reflect kind of what you're talking about turning 30 like the idea that we take different we we make different choices in life and those choices can often drive friendships apart one person chooses to Get married or commit to another person and start a family. Another person is single, makes, you know, is free seven days a week, can go out at 10 o'clock at night, can go out, you know, can take a five day boondoggle somewhere. So I just thought that I have friends like that or family like that that have made different choices from my own. And I thought that was interesting because it is challenging to stay in touch. And also, I would think, oh, that that person who's single and leads this crazy life would never want to hang out with me because they would think it's boring. And really on the other side, they're like, John never calls me because he doesn't want to spend time with me. So I, I wanted to reflect that in in the story.
1: When, uh, and so with this film, with me time, I'd say that certainly in terms of like box office, traditional star power, I'd say that these are two of the biggest leads that you've had. So I'm curious when you have actors who's, who are brands unto themselves, who are personalities onto themselves. Are you writing the roles with them in mind or once they're on board, are you sort of reshaping them around their skills? And, and to that point, how was the personalities and chemistry of Kevin and Mark worked into this film?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the first draft of this movie, um, I just tried to write the best movie I could write and make the characters as real as possible. And then once I finish and we come up for air, it's like, okay, who's gonna, who are we going to approach to play this part? and you know netflix and i had the same person which was kevin hart so i had known kevin we'd worked together before so you know i approached him and you know he he connected with the script and the story and wanted to do it and then began a process of rewriting the movie excuse me for kevin and really getting his voice in there so you know that was a, a you know i did a rewrite just really going through you know having Kevin in my head and I I came up with different scenes based on conversations that we had and then you know we did that and it's like who who do we want to play Huck Mark Wahlberg and he was our first and only aimed low huh I mean yeah right uh, let's go for uh, one of the great stars basically in movie history both
1: of them I mean they're yeah, massive absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah and Mark clicked with it you know I think the character felt like related to things he had done but not exactly what he had done i think he connected with kind of the heart i'm not making a pun about kevin but the heart that huck has that he does these misguided things and pushes kevin's character to do stupid things but it all comes from a good place and i think mark is such a decent big-hearted human that he clicked with that you know so that was the genesis and then the two of them their chemistry they was incredible i mean sometimes you really have to work for it when you sort of put two icons movie stars together they they knew each other uh and had this from from the jump had this incredibly easygoing chemistry they cracked each other up i genuinely think they loved each other just off the set as you know they they just got a kick out of each other and so it made my job uh, a lot easier
1: let me ask about mark was that effigy real
0: yeah oh yeah that
1: did you just have the one
0: we had, yeah, we didn't have the budget for two effigies. Uh, one effigy. It took a long time to figure out exactly how big it should be, how wide, what the expression should be. And one, one great memory for me filming was the day that Mark arrived at the desert location, and I think he sort of forgot that there was going to be this massive effigy of him. Just looked up, and even Mark, who's been famous, you know, for uh, thirty years, was like. Holy
1: shit. <laughs> <So>, um, <laughs> That'd be a trippy thing, fun. regardless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I now want to touch on Along Came Polly. As I said, this is one of those films I just remember watching with my mom and dad and sister all the time. And I'm not sure that that's the target demo that you had in mind yeah. when the film came yeah. out, yeah. but that's who it wound up finding. And yep. it's tough to talk about that film without talking about the late, great Philip C. Moore Hoffman, especially since. As an 11-year-old, that movie was my first introduction to him. So I assumed that he was a comedic actor. (laughs) Only like 10 years later did I realize, oh, he was one of his generation's greats. So I'm curious, how did that casting come to be? Because you sort of landed him, I think, right on the cusp of his Academy Award nomination for Capote and sort of the general consensus of, oh, this guy's like one of the best
0: yeah. he so I had known Phil a little bit because I was based in New York at the time, as was he. And he had auditioned for my first movie, this little uh, indie kind of cult movie called Safe Men. And I didn't cast him. um it had a great has a great cast, Sam Rockwell, Steve Zahn, Mark Ruffalo, Paul Giamatti, and others. but um, but i he made it quite an impression on me. And we would kind of cross paths. We had some mutual friends. And then he started to, do more and more work. He hadn't blown up to become like the icon yet, but I just knew I wanted somebody who was a great actor for that part, not necessarily a comedic star. And I just felt he had it in him to to deliver this performance. I thought the character was so funny that if Phil just played it with all of his acting ability, it would be explosive. And, you know, thankfully, he said yes, and it was very interesting. I mean, he's he did so many incredible movies, but he told me, you know, a lot of times walking down the streets, people would shout out, "Let it rain" or things like that from Along Came Polly, and I think it tortured him for a while. But then he became at peace with it. He he actually told me that, uh, you know, uh, you know, d- maybe ten years after the movie well, came out,
1: because I found that both in this film and I Love You, Man, like they are. There are phrases in those films that are still culturally relevant today. All all of the nonsense that Paul Rudd says in I Love You Man, I still hear those jokes to this day and of course like the basketball scenes. So yeah. when you were when you made Along Kane Polly because I'm sure a lot of that was in, improv, right? The stuff that he's saying as he shoots or
0: mm-hmm. Actually that movie has a lot less improv than my future movies.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. My, so you
0: know, than the movies that came after that
1: points though being were there any moments where you watched him work where you just remember sitting there and being taken aback and thinking holy shit man like what an actor
0: oh oh absolutely no no he he really found the character during that during filming that basketball scene and yes it, it written in the script is let it rain and white chocolate and stuff like that but he for sure added stuff but in that scene i think he fully committed so much physically Emotionally, and I felt, yeah, I, I, hundred percent felt like I am watching one of the greats, and of course Ben Stiller as well. So I felt like I was watching two, you know, two of the best I think to ever do this. Um, and you know, you just feel so grateful as a filmmaker to be there. I was in my earliest thirties when I made that movie, and I just would pinch myself, going, I, I, you know, kind of can't believe I'm here witnessing this. I
1: was gonna say he's doing more drama, but. Careful, man. Ben is going to come to take your job directing too.
0: Well, he is such an amazing director. I mean, I knew that from you know Reality Bites and Zoolander, which we worked on together. Um, but the Evil Guy is his as well, right? Evil Guy, yeah. As yeah. a kid,
1: I remember, even though that that was darker, Jim Carrey was like my guy, and dark. I even yeah. liked that one. You yeah, know?
0: that was great. No, he. But people forget Ben as a comic actor. It to me is as as good as anybody yep. who's ever done it. Oh so yeah, ba- back working, in yeah. back
1: in my childhood, he was one of the guys. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So So uh, now I want to move up a bit to I love you, man. Were those phrases scripted? They don't even seem scriptable. They're not even human words. I- I've got, <laughs> I've got totes magotes, Jobin. Later's on the menjé city Slack, <laughs> and Slap of the bass. And so I'm just curious about the process of how those lines came to be because there's so it's such. Abstract comedy that by the time it gets to me, it's been written and acted and edited, and sure. so it feels like a fully formed product. But in in the abstract, it's so absurd that I'm just curious of how they came, how Paul or you or the writers came up with it, and how you decide that that's funny or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I was a writer, so I was just you know, I wrote some of it Uh for sure. Some of those phrases uh, were in the script and many others were Paul just improvising and he he's one of the greatest uh, improvisers of all time a hundred percent and he just felt so connected to that character and he and I were so connected during the making of that movie that um you know he just ran with it and and these crazy ridiculous phrases there might have been one line in the script you know there was a slap of the bass line in the script that was definitely but He took that one line and turned it into a symphony. And, uh, you know, and then we, you know, we just added all these slap of the bass moments. And then we thought that could be something. We actually filmed that first slap of the bass scene the first week of production. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was something. And uh, so then I sort of stuck it into every subsequent scene, knowing that in the editing room, we might want to pick and choose. Uh, you know, because we thought we were on to some comedy gold there. So it's a combination. That movie has more improv than Along Came Polly does, um, yeah. and you know, but it's also the nature of Paul's character in that he can't, he almost can't speak the English language when he's with another man. You you put him with uh, a, a woman, and he's he's great, but with which men, most
1: men would kill for that. You know what I mean?
0: He's the opposite, and yeah. I think that's why one of the reasons maybe why that movie connected with people. You know.
1: And just real quick there, let me just, which I'm sure you're well aware of, but let me just list off the supporting cast. J.K. Simmons, Rashida Jones, Andy Samberg, Nick Kroll, John Favreau, Thomas Lennon, and even guys like Rob Hubel and Matt Walsh. My Does question mean- for you is how?
0: No, I mean it it was it I guess they you know a movie it's easier to get people for a movie than a t- say a TV series because their commitment is not that long. They all connected with it. I knew some of them personally, others, you know, came in some you'd be surprised came in to audition back then. Um and we had a great casting director Allison Jones who's an icon of casting comedy, you know, in our business and uh Also, then you just go, okay, who are the funniest people alive? Tom Lennon is a good buddy of mine. And it was like, he'd actually come in and read for another part. And I was like, I don't think he's right for that part, but I, but he could be good for the role of Doug. And so, you know, you just, it's part of a director's job to kind of get the funniest, best people you can. That's same with me time. You know, we have this great supporting cast and we try to just populate it with the funniest humans out there.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, congrats on the new film and all the work that you've done in comedy for what, the last 25 years, which is close to my whole lifetime. Keep carrying the torch for the genre because there's not much of you left out there. <laughs> You're
0: Thank making me man. feel like a dinosaur, but I'll take it. <laughs>
1: Thank you, John. Thanks, man. Appreciate Yeah.
0: Thank you so much.
1: All right, y'all. That will do it for us this week. Make sure to follow Brandon at great underscore Catsby. He's doing great work over at The Wrap. Make sure to follow Cade at Cade underscore Under. Follow me at Eric Italiano. Follow the podcast at Post-Gred Pod. Join us again next week where we will be discussing House of the Dragon and She-Hulk episode two. I also have an interview with John Hamburg, the director of films such as The Long Game Polly, I Love You Man, and the new Netflix film Me Time. Awesome. Uh, I think I think we're gonna have that one next week as well. So we will talk to you next week, B. Well, dude,
3: as a fan, I want to listen to that interview. That sounds <laughs> great. Those are, those are some great rom coms yeah. you just threw uh,
1: out. Dude, along came Polly is like is like the bible to my family. I could. It's great. Can it, we can quote every line.
3: Please that. ask him about like Philip Seymour Hoffman, arguably the greatest character actor of our generation, doing a rom com and like you know, what he brought to that space.
1: That, and I'm going to ask, like, if he ever imagined that all of the dumb things that Paul Rudd says and I Love You Man would be, like, culturally relevant 15 years later. <laughs> Literally
3: yesterday, I texted my girlfriend a gift later to the men jays. Yeah, exactly. We're still saying
1: <laughs> like, how does that happen? Uh, all right, B, uh, I know you're a busy, busy guy, but we hope to see you back again for more House of the Dragon. That's no right. I'm hoping once... Uh, the plot starts to catch into gear. We will dive in a bit deeper. All right, y'all. We will talk to you next week. Basically.
3: I'm gonna make him an offer. Again.
0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.